questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. A small seven-year-old boy listens to the footsteps of a 250-pound woman moving down the hallway on a squeaky sub floor at three in the morning. He huddles in bed with the covers pulled up over his head, hearing the slow turning of his bedroom doorknob under insane mumblings that sound like an animal speaking a foreign language. To hear her arguing with someone who was not there since his heart racing. As usual, he waits in terror for the moment to pass as he hears the footsteps make their way back down the long dark hallway. He jumps up and cracks open the door. From his vantage point, the moon illuminates the single window at the far end of the hall. The reflection of the woman in the moonlight burns disturbingly into his memory forever. Two inches of doorway opening is all he needs to witness what looks like someone has taken up residency in his mother. The closer she gets to the end of the hall, the more focused her disfigured face appears. That face becomes his own personal horror story. She hits her chest with a winter boot in each hand, laughing wildly and moving into deep discussions with unseen persons. Her eyes are wide, ever so wild, yet fearful. Her irregular toothy grin and the wagging of her tongue set the young boy's heart on edge. This was the first time it happened. From then on, he would go to bed each night with his hockey stick in hand and his dresser pushed up against the door. That small, frightened seven-year-old was tonight's special guest. This is his eyewitness account, which is not merely the true story of the demon possession of his mother, but the frantic attempt of a seven-year-old boy to survive the daily onslaught of her insane and devilish behavior. This battle continued for 12 years. He had no idea until his teen years that this behavior wasn't normal. It was his reality, since he knew nothing different. His mother's 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week ordeal was all he ever knew of her. He was in his teens when her bizarre behavior escalated to frightening heights so that he had to adjust his living just to survive. This unfortunately began long before he was able to recognize, as you will hear as the story unfolds. Most common, if we can use that word, paranormal accounts are short in duration. But this was his life for 12 plus agonizing years. The terror she subjected him to was all day and all night. As if she never slept. It kept on even when he snuck in the house undetected. The same insane babbling and self-inflicted violence. It was always coupled with constant whistling and the arguing of many voices, all of them coming from her all day, every day. Evening would bring on panic and the screaming, thumping, banging and night movements would commence. All of it was absolutely shocking to him. His name is Michael Anthony Gagliardi and this is his story. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store 
for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, EMP Shield, Solar, and EMP Protection, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Tonight's special guest is Michael Anthony Gagliardi. This is the harrowing true story of a young boy's survival for 12 plus years with a demonically possessed mother. She terrorized the family, the neighbors, and authorities in a small northern town in Ontario, Canada from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. A gripping and heartbreaking tale full of fear, anger, courage, and most importantly, perseverance. Michael married at the early age of 19, and he and his wife had two daughters and eventually five grandchildren and are still married going on 33 years. Michael is a Latin flamenco and smooth jazz guitarist who plays countless events for casinos, private clients, and theater concerts, mostly in the California, Arizona, and Nevada regions of the United States, but has played internationally, far away as Israel. And directly from Coachella Valley in Southern California, I would like to welcome Michael Anthony Gagliardi, the author of Devil Take the Hindmost. Hello, Michael, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Uh, very good. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure be, to be able to uh, speak about my book. By the way, before we begin, I just want to let you know, congratulations, because I love flamenco music, and I've been listening to your music all day long today. <laughs> Honestly, really, really great stuff. But let's begin with your story, which is a riveting story. Let's begin from the moment you were born. I was born in 1968 in a little Italian community in uh, one of the boroughs of Toronto. It's much like uh, New York. We've got you know boroughs, and the borough that I I was born into is called Etobicoke. It's a an Indian name, but it, it, even to this day, it is an Italian uh, community. Most most Italians live. And uh, from 1968 to 1973, uh, we moved in and around the Toronto area. And uh, by the time I was, uh, I would say, three years old, maybe even before, before three years old, uh, things started happening in our house. Um, uh, even at that age, I was very, you know, I was very young, but I was very... Um, let's say sensitive to to um, uh, spiritual things. I was very sensitive and analytical, uh, even as a small child. And I began to notice that there were things things wrong in our house. Uh, I have a sister that's seven years older than me, so she was more um, uh, uh, coherent. Um, because of her age at that time, but she confirmed a lot of the things that I was feeling, that something was just not right uh, in our house uh, with our mother. Uh, I think around 1970, 72, I believe it was, uh, the first incident happened, you know, coming, we're an Italian family. Um, my mother's side was Italian and my father's side was from Italy. And uh, the, the first event that happened that really began to open my eyes 
was that, uh, you know, during lunchtime as a, as a little Italian boy, we would always get this, uh, this little, uh, soup called, uh, uh pasta fasule, which is a uh, pastina. Uh, it's like star soup. American people would know it as like a little star soup. And my mother would always call me to the table <clears throat> and it would already be on the table. That was the, the regular routine. Uh, but this particular afternoon, um, when we were living in Toronto, uh, she called me to the table. I went to the table. It wasn't there. And she came up behind me and dumped the scalding hot soup down my left shoulder. And, uh, of course it was scalding hot. So I was screaming and yelling and, uh, she offered no, no, uh, uh, consolation to me, no affection. She didn't ask me if I was okay. She was extremely indifferent about it. I remember uh, her calling a taxi. We took a taxi uh, to the doctors. Uh, she never consoled me uh, on the way there. She never told me it was going to be okay. She never kissed me. She never asked me anything. There was no affection whatsoever. And uh, we went to the doctor. I don't remember what exactly happened to the doctor, but I believe he bandaged my shoulder up uh, because I had... They, they weren't uh, severe burns, like first degree or anything, but I remember it being very painful. And uh, we went home, and basically that incident was forgotten about, uh, but it was the incident that opened up my eyes that something was wrong. And the trauma that I experienced from that, uh, that's what opened my eyes. And I began to to watch my mother and to be very, very sensitive about what was going on in the house. I remember at that time, it was before this, um, my mother's father had died. Uh, this could have been before I was even born, but she adored her, her father so much. And she had two other siblings. Those two siblings she had to take care of because my mother, my grandmother, I guess she just lost it when her husband died. Um, I guess they all adored him. He, he was a good man, but uh, he died in a tragic accident. And I remember at the, around the same time we were living in this house, uh, the scalding soup happened in, in an apartment, but we moved from there into our first house. I remember it was one of those duplexes uh, that are in Toronto with a house on the bottom and then a house at street level. And uh, I remember going to bed and you know, having the door open a little bit and I could hear, you know, when you're three, four years old, you know, the parents don't think you can hear them, uh, but, you know, you do hear them. And even if you don't understand what's going on at that point, you remember it and then you figure it out later. But uh, I remember them hearing, uh, hearing through the door, them talking about these words, seances and, and uh, ESP and, and, you know, all these kind of things. And at that time, those were very popular things. Seances in the late sixties, early seventies were, were, were popular, uh, uh, spiritual events. And, uh, I remember that. I remember that. And I think, uh, from talking to my sister, I think this was the beginning point, the entry point that my mom tried to, uh, uh, you know, get through to the spiritual realm, uh, to talk to her father that she loved so much. And, uh, I think that was the, the entry point. And, uh, from what my sister tells me that these events started happening when I was very young. So they began to increase by the, by 1974, 
we moved 100 miles away, which was really weird because my dad worked in Toronto. So we moved 100 and it's actually 115 miles away. And he had to go work back down in Toronto. So he we moved so far away and then he had to drive all the way back down there uh, to work. So he'd stay down there during the week. And uh, th- this was our life. My father was never home. He was only uh, home on the weekend for a few hours and then he would uh, go back down to Toronto. And then when we moved up to Meaford, that's when things began to escalate even more. Um, she was beginning to say crazy things now that I had never heard. Um, she never talked to me. I never heard her just speak to me normally. Uh, she was unaffectionate. She never t- touched me. Who, who made the decision? Me affection. Who made the decision to move? Your dad or your mom? I, um, I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. I think something happened. Uh, because all of our family was down there, our Italian side of the family and uh, my my mother's brother and sister and their kids, they all lived down in Toronto. So something happened because it seemed very odd to move so far away. You know, people usually move toward work, not Correct. away from it. <laughs> so it's almost so as if your mom moved the two of you for a purpose. And by the way, for the American listeners, the the boroughs where you used to live, it's the equivalent of Queens or Brooklyn in New York, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've got, I think, five five or six boroughs in, in Toronto. And they're just cities attached to each other, you know, exactly how they are in New York City yeah. with Bronx and in Queens and Manhattan and places like that. But, uh, yeah, that's where it all started. And then when we moved 100 miles away, we actually moved to this little town on a bay that was populated. It was 4,200 at the time. I think it's 4,500 now. So it hasn't really grown over the last 40 years, but, uh, we moved there and, uh, then it was just my sister and I and my mother pretty much. My dad would come home on weekends and, uh, this is where it began to escalate. My mother's condition began to worsen. She began talking to herself, uh, you know, when when we moved up there, I think it was 1970, the summer of 74, because I was just going into kindergarten in 75. Um, this is where she began to talk to herself. And, you know, we didn't really think that much of it, you know, and uh, she kept to herself. She hadn't she had hardly any friends. We every I think it was every Thursday or Wednesday night, we would go to the uh, Kingdom Hall. Uh, she was a Jehovah's Witness. I think that had happened to, before I was born. But uh, we went to the Kingdom Hall. We went a couple of years. And then for some unknown weird reason, we were excommunicated. Uh, it just happened one day. We were going and then we weren't going. It was very strange. Um, I think that they we were excommunicated for the, for the, the rumors that I remember. Uh, once I got in high school, you know, kids talk. It's a small town. I think we were excommunicated because someone accused my father of being a, a, a drug kingpin or something like that uh, during the pizza connection days in the early 80s, 1980, mm. 1981. So I'm, I'm really not sure if that was true or not. I know that my dad was involved in uh, – he had many friends in the mafia. Uh, he was friends with the Luci- Luciano Pavarotti and his brother – and uh, we frequently would go down to Toronto on a Saturday in the wintertime to barter because my dad was a fisherman 
and we'd go there and we'd go to all these Italian all these Italian clubs, you know, they're the kind of clubs where, you know, nobody goes in and buys anything. And it's the same guys that are in there day after day after day after day, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so they were very strange, very strange. We would go in, he would uh, disappear, you know, behind a, a curtain in the back room. I'd play a video game. He'd show up, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes later, and then we'd leave. So that, that part of it was all a mystery to me. But uh, once we had moved to Meaford, this is where things began to escalate. And she began talking to herself. And then as a few years progressed, when I became seven, eight years old, uh, so now we're looking about the first three years in Meaford, she began to be more articulate about what she was saying and arguing with herself and, and having conversations like uh, she was speaking like multiple personality uh, type of thing, talking to two different people inside herself. That, that's the gist of it. And because it happened so slowly, all of us just kind of, yeah, she's crazy and we didn't take any notice. And it wasn't until I was about 10 years old that things started to started to ramp up. Not only did she start to have these conversations, but now they became uh, very uh, wicked in nature. And then she began to have different voices. Uh, she would conversate in different voices and answer in different voices. And then a few years after that, it would get the, the conversations were more violent, more vile, uh, more fighting and arguing uh, with herself. And then they began to go into languages that I couldn't understand. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing when I look back at it now, uh, because when it was all going on, you know, I was, uh, you know, pretty much oblivious to it. But to this day, I have learned many languages, foreign languages, because I couldn't understand what she was saying. And it made me so frustrated to not know what was going on, because for as far back as I can remember, she would talk to herself. And as the years progressed and went on, the conversations got worse. They got evil. They got blasphemous. They got uh, violent and vile in nature to the point where. She was doing this uh, from every waking moment of the morning till dusk and till nighttime. And I, it, it was beginning to really drive me insane because she never shut up. It was like we, were, we would be in the room and she, it was as if she didn't even see us. She would go on talking and whistling and, and, and I mean whistling like, you know, really pitch perfect songs and singing singing hymns and 70 songs in this loud voice. And then all of a sudden start arguing with herself and going between these voices. And it started to get a little freaky about, I, I think I was 10 years old. By the time I was 13 years old, this is where all of that stuff kept going on day after day, after day, after day, like that wasn't enough. And then by the time I was 13 years old, right around then, she began, and she did all this sitting in a chair in the living room, and she never left. She, she never left that chair all day long. She would be there all day long until dusk, and then go to her room at nighttime. And then that's where things started to escalate from there to different realms of evil. But uh, during around thirteen years old, this is now where she began 
to have these conversations. They'd be in different languages. They'd be in different voices, some high, some low. I mean, she was only five feet tall and she was, uh, she was five feet tall and she was ravenously eating everything in the house. By this time she was gaining weight. She must've been 260 pounds. And she was wow. only five feet tall and she had, you know, very, she had a very high voice because she had short vocal cords and she was emitting these guttural, these guttural, you know, that kind of, that kind of voice, you know, the, the only thing I can liken it is to, um, you know, after this all happened, I started doing my own research and I came across the Annalise Michelle tapes and those voices, there's a few of the voices that she has in there that sound almost exactly the same. They sound almost exactly the same. Like, like, like the movie, wonder, like the movie, The Exorcist. No, no. Like the, the if you look at the, listen to the tapes of the Annalise Michelle from 1975, she was demonically possessed okay. in uh, Klingenberg. And if you listen to those tapes, the priests, they, uh, they uh, uh, audio tape to them all. There's like, I don't know, a few hours of them, but the Vatican only released, I think, uh, 50 minutes of it. There's a, there's one particular voice on there that sounds exactly like her. I, I, I'm so familiar with it because I heard it all these years. So she would go into these conversations and she'd be doing that. And now she'd be hitting herself with a log. She had a good size log about uh, twice the size of a baseball bat. And she'd be whacking herself in the chest. And I mean, so hard that you could hear the thud from outside. And she was doing this. Like I said, this is around 13 years old, 13 and a half years old. She did this for at least four and a half years uh, before everything, you know, before she died. But she was hitting herself with this log so hard that the thud, I would, I would go out, you know, during the day on my bike, come home at dusk. And when I'm parking my bike outside, I could hear the thuds from inside, from her whacking herself in her chest. And I, you know, I'd come in the house and there she was talking and, and, you know, and whacking herself with this log, her chest would be all red. It would just beat red and she'd be doing this all day long. And then the only thing that would change is that, uh, when the sun went down, soon as the sun began to go down, then she'd retreat from that chair and go into her room. And then this is when a whole another paradigm of of uh, uh of accounts started happening usually the night started with her she'd go in her room she'd slam her door and then maybe 15 20 minutes later i'd start to hear all this banging now we had a subfloor and with a subfloor you know if you hit your foot on the on the floor you can hear it you know you hear it throughout the house and i would hear what sounded like three people uh wrestling you know if kids are wrestling in a room and falling off the bed and knocking into the 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 walls and and stuff like that and this would go on and then finally i'd become so so frustrated and angry because it was disturbing and i'd run down the hall i'd whip open the her door as quickly as i could and she'd be lying there on the bed with the covers pulled up to her eyes you know just over her nose under her eyes and I'd be going, I'd be thinking to myself, what, what the hell's been going on? Because she was lying in her bed. You know, she, like I said, she was five feet tall and she weighed 260 pounds. She, she was very slow. 
She was very slow in anything that she did, you know? So when that began, I, I began to be extremely afraid. Uh, this had happened beforehand, but this is when I started to really get afraid that I pushed my armoire against my door every night and I slept with a hockey stick in a fetal position because, you know, it's Canada. So we all played hockey. I had many hockey sticks. I slept with a hockey stick and I slept in this fetal position for so many years uh, that that I created dents in the bed till the string, the springs popped out from my hip, my shoulder and my knee and my ankle. Oh, you know, all the places that have the, the weight of your body. And, uh, I remained in that position all night long because she tried to enter into my room every night. And when she'd rattle the door and she couldn't get past the, uh, you know, the armoire, she'd have to make a lot of noise you know, I'd jump out of bed. I'd be right there ready with my hockey stick, you know, and uh, then she'd go back down the hall. She'd give up and go back down the hall screaming. I mean, just blood curdling, you know, female screams and, and, and end up in her back in her bedroom and slam the door would slam. She always was slamming the door. Uh, she had so much hatred, you know, that was emitting from her. Just so much hatred. But the weird thing is that I never heard my mom talk in a normal voice, you know, like, uh, good morning, dear. How are you today? You know, you're off to school. I never heard her talk in a normal voice. The only time I ever heard her is when the police came over. Now, the police visited our house many, many times. She would go and knock on the doors of the neighbors in the area you know, on either side of us and across the street, she'd knock on their door. The people would answer the door and she would say, you know, in, and they would say, she'd, she'd say this in a strange voice. Um, I'm going to cut your head off and just turn around and walk away. So the police came to our house all the time and they would come interview me in my room. And when I'd be waiting, you know, they tell me, go sit in your room. You know, one of the officers will come and talk to you. I could hear my them interviewing my mother in her room and she would be talking completely normal. Oh, uh, yes, officer. No, there's nothing, nothing going on, nothing happening. And that was the first time in my life I ever heard her speak in a normal, a m normal voice. Wow. But when they left the, the second she left, they left, the police left here, she would go back into this, this trance. It was like she was in a trance. She, there were times where I would come right up to her face and get so frustrated and yell in her face two inches away from her. And she wouldn't even acknowledge that I was standing there. It was, it was the most bizarre thing, you know, that I, I had to leave as many times as I could. I would just leave. And, you know, in Canada, you know, you can only leave for, for so long, you know, in the summer. Yeah. But uh, she began to gain more and more weight. She was so ravenous in her eating. And I mean, she didn't eat like a, like a, a wife, like a woman. She ate like an animal. She just grabbed whatever she had, just stuffed it in her mouth and, you know, swallowed her, swallowed it. All her teeth were all broken. And I don't know how they got broken, but all her teeth were broken. She used to, this is when things were really bad. She used to just look at me from across the room and, you know, I'd walk up to her and she would be wagging her, her tongue back and forth with her mouth wide open. And I would see 
that all of her molars, they were all just partials. They were all chipped and broken and sharp edges. And her tongue, you know, because I got to see her tongue many times because she was always wagging it, wagging it at me. On both sides of her tongue, on the long sides of her tongue, they were all serrated. She had these serrated edges all along the side of her tongue, like from her teeth broken. They had been, you know, scratching away at her tongue. I don't know what she was doing. You know, I don't know if if the banging in the room was she was getting thrown around or she was throwing herself around, but all her teeth were broken, you know, and except for her two front teeth, her two front teeth were the only ones that weren't broken. All the rest of them were all just pieces, just pieces. And I got to see them, you know, often because she was always opening her mouth and wagging her tongue at me. And there were only two moments I remember, and I think I was uh, maybe 16 years old, where she she broke the trance for like 30 seconds. And I remember being in the room and I was walking to the door. So, which means I had to pass by her chair. And, um, she said to me in a normal speaking voice, she said to me, they're running up the back of my spine and perching in my head. And she says, this is how they get in. There was two phrases like that. And then the second she was done saying that, Boom, right back. And she'd be arguing, you know, back and forth in all these, these so, voices. So, and then, so that was like a, a, a parenthesis, a parenthesis of lucidity that she had for a few seconds. Yeah, she did it awkwardly. She did it two times. It was like she was reaching out to me. I could see that. I could see it in her eyes. Like she was reaching out. And I was just a kid. And I knew she probably knew if she was lucid at that moment that I there's nothing I could do to help her, you know, but she did it anyway. And she did that two times where she stopped the madness. It stopped for one for 30 seconds. She said that thing two times. And that was probably uh, the two times she said it well, one time. And then maybe it was a month later and she said it again. And she said it kind of like it was in a different way. She said, they're coming into me. They're coming into me. I remember she said that twice. They're coming into me. They run up the back of my spine and they perch in my head. And and I, I remember that when she said that because later on in life, it wasn't until my 40s where I was really thinking about all this stuff. You know, I said, why would she use the word perch? You know, and I thought about that. And I thought that's exactly what gargoyles do, you know, on medieval buildings. You know, we don't use that word except for a bird. And we know that the bird perches on his back legs. Yeah. He sits on a branch and he perches, you know? And the weirdest thing is when I was listening to those Annalise Michelle tapes, that's exactly what they said. They said, we're in here perching in her head. And that's exactly what my mother said. She says they entered her spine, ran up the back of her spine and then into her head. And she knew they were there. And this is the exact same thing that Annalise Michelle uh, said when she was lucid. She says, that's what happens. They, I know they're there. I can feel them. <clears throat> But, uh, you know, it, it got so bad. It got so bad at this point. You know, my sister was already, you know, 19 or 20 years old, I think, at the time. And <clears throat> and uh, one one nice, you know, afternoon, I you know, we were getting to around the close of school. I'm not sure how old I was, <clears throat> maybe 13 or 14. But uh Um, 
I was in school. I was in school and a knock at the door came and there was a policeman. There was a, um, uh, one of the, um, the principal and they talked to my teacher and then they called me to come outside the room. So I, I went outside the room and they said, you're going to go with Jerry. Jerry was our neighbor. He was our next door neighbor that was uh, right to the right of us. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay. And I got in the car and while we were, you know, going home, Jerry said to me, there's been an accident. And I said, well, what happened? She says, well, your, your mother tried to kill your sister. And I, I, you know, I wasn't shocked by that at all. I mean, I was always waiting for it, you know? And then of course, when I got home, my mother wasn't there. This was the first time they t- took her away uh, to the mental institution in Owen Sound. Uh, it, it was back then it was a mental institution on its own. It wasn't part of the hospital, which it is now. So they informed me when I got home, my sister was in her, she was a wreck. She was in shock, you know, but they informed me that what had happened was that my mother was in the uh, kitchen. My sister was in the living room and uh, she said something from the living room or from the kitchen. She said, uh, they told me that you're a witch and you've got to die. And then she came flying out of the kitchen with this butcher knife and my sister, you know, ran. And my sister told me, she says, the only reason why I'm alive today is because when I left in the morning, I left the mudroom door open. So you didn't have to turn the door. You just pulled the knob. I left the screen door open. When the screen door clicked, it got stuck and you had to click it three or four times before it opened. It was sticky. And then I left the exterior door open to the outside, you know, from the mudroom to outside. She told me that if I hadn't left those doors open, that she would have been killed. And she ran around the car. My mother was chasing her around the car. And that's when the neighbors heard and they called the police. And then, you know, that's when they came and got her and and took her away. And then after that, my sister left. She went, uh, she was old enough to leave. So she went and lived with my grandmother down in, in Toronto. So quick, but, uh, quick, was, quick, quick pause sure. here for a second. How old were you at this very moment? I was 13 or 14, somewhere around in there. When I think it was grade, um, geez, I can't remember. I can't remember, but I think I was in grade seven or something, seven or eight. And your sister was about what, 19, 20? Somewhere along there, yeah. So my yeah. question to you is, if you experienced, you wrote this book and you experienced all these horror stories uh, your sister was there seven years before you yes what did she experience too well she doesn't talk about it to this day she won't talk about it uh we there was a time back because i was living her with her uh when i when we when i moved out and then i was making plans to come to california i lived with her for one year we both moved down to toronto we talked about it a little bit but we never have talked about it ever since. Uh, I tried to bring it up. She completely denies it. You know, she lived with me in that house, but I never saw her because she in her she stayed in her room and she put a huge padlock on her door. So she just lived in her room. And when when we would go out, sometimes we would go out through the window, our window, because the window was on, you know, it was way high. And we knew that she couldn't get in. Right. So we'd go out through our, our windows. 
you know, but she lived in her room with a padlock on the door and the inside. I hardly ever saw her growing up. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's so bizarre when I, when I think about it now, I mean, it was completely normal back then because we were in the middle of it, but, uh, I think about it now and it's like, wow, that was, that was crazy. You know, I lived with her for all those years and I never saw her, you know, she came out would grab some food and then disappear back into her room and, and lock, lock the door. You know, I mean, she was doing that long before I was putting the armoire against the, against my bed. So she tried to get into her room too at nighttime too. I'm, I'm positive. I think we had had that conversation before. Did she ever try to intervene? Obviously when you were a child, she was much older than you. Did she ever try to defend you from your mom at all? No, no, she, there was nothing she could do. Like I said, she lived in that room. I barely ever saw her. We did talk about that um, a few years ago, and she said that she felt horrible when she left. But after my mom tried to commit murder, you know, um, she she had to go. She couldn't she couldn't take it anymore. And she told me that she had deep deep regret leaving me there all alone because I was a minor. And and you know after that it happened. You know she left. Three months later, they brought her back. She was allowed to come back. Apparently, she signed herself in and then signed herself out. Three months. Three months later, after attempting murder, they were. she was allowed to come back into the household with a minor. I have three words for you. Three words. Child Protective Services. I don't know what the equivalent is in Canada, but where was Child Protective Services of Canada during that time? That's a good question. That's a good question because the police were always there. She tried to burn the house down. The fire department were there. Oh my gosh, maybe uh, ten times, ten times over four or five years. You know, she burnt everything, everything that I owned, my clothes. Uh, I never had toys growing up. I never had anything. Anything that came into the house was new. She burned. She threw it in the fireplace, and it would catch the the chimney on fire. You know, and then possibly the attic. I mean, the thing would be glowing red. And uh, somebody would call the fire department. I don't even know who did it, but the fire department was always showing up at her house. And the weird thing is, is that, you know, her chair that she sat in was, um, I would say, three and a half feet from the fireplace. And the firemen would come in through the door, you know, in full regalia, you know, um, pounding on the pipes and, and, you know, sticking things up the pipe. She was right there and she'd be whacking herself with the, with the log and I'd be standing there. It wouldn't even phase her. And I, I don't, the fire department, they, those guys, they never said a word. They never said a word, but she never even stopped even when the fire guys were there. And our living room was just a little tiny living room. It was maybe uh, a 10 feet by 12 feet, you know, <laughs> I mean, the actual hose what they, when they brought it in, almost ran across her feet. That's how close they were to her. And she'd be whacking herself and, and doing, you know, talking. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it only amazes me today to understand how no one, no one was able to see that there was anything wrong. There was only one time by 10th grade. So by 10th grade, I was losing my mind. Uh, I was, I, I had had it. I, I was losing my mind. I was losing touch with reality because of all the screaming and, and, you know, the pounding and, and everything that was going on in her room at nighttime and the way I had to sleep. I had insomnia for a good 15 years after that. And uh, I, I, 
one teacher said to me, she said, is everything okay at home? And I said, yeah, fine. Why? I mean, I, I didn't even have, have any idea that anything was wrong because this happened so gradually over the years. And she, and my teacher, she didn't, uh, she didn't, um, intervene any, she just asked a question. I answered it. And then that was the end of that, you know, and nothing ever became of it. And it's so bizarre to know that how many times the police came over when she threatened all the neighbors to kill them too. And then they're bringing her back with a minor in the house. That just blows my mind. At the time, I didn't even think about it, but I remember social services talking to me at a doctor's office. And I remember, uh, I remember telling them, you know, so you, she's going to come back. I said, so to, for you guys, what do I have to show that, that this is a dangerous situation? Do, do I have to come back here with a, with a knife in my back? I said that. And they just kind of laughed at me. I mean, I, I, I didn't understand the whole thing at that point. I didn't know that it was, uh, uh, how do you say the word? Um, you know, that it was, uh, you know, not very social, sociably acceptable, you know, for a mother to try to commit murder on her children and then be released back into the home again. But that's exactly what happened. She came home. She came home. And uh, I remember the day that she walked in the door. She walked in the door. She walked right by me. I, I happened to be standing in the middle of the room. She walked right by me and never even said a word to me. She went straight to the refrigerator and started eating everything in the refrigerator. And then this brings us to a point where I would, I told my dad, I said, there's nothing in the house. And for years I had to steal food. I stole food in, in the winter time from all the kids at school. You know, if any of them, you know, listen to these recordings, they'll know that, uh, you know, there was somebody at school who was stealing lunches for years uh -huh. and they never caught that person. Well, that person was me. And then during the summertime, I would go ransack uh, gardens because everybody had a garden back then and there were no fences. You know, in Canada, there's no fences. You know, everybody's backyard just conjoins. But you were doing was, this for, for survival. It's not like yeah. you were stealing people's, you know, food for, for, for no reason at all. And if he had no. told a, a government official, the police, firemen, your neighbor, Jerry, what? I just don't understand why nothing happened and you were just, both of you were left to your own, on your own, to your own devices. I, I don't understand it either, but that's exactly what happened. And I've talked to other people that were, uh, you know, living in Canada at that time. And they said that that was, that's how the society, that's how it worked. There were protocols, you know, nobody took anything seriously, you know, back in the seventies, you know, the seventies, and I, I can only speak for Canada, but back in the seventies, you know, you know, mid seventies to early eighties, Canada was a very, it was, I'm not going to say liberal, but it was a very forgiving place. Nobody ever did anything wrong. Everybody was forgiven. You know, every, nobody locked their doors. And to, to actually think that something was going on, you know, heinous was, I think the, that in the Canadian psyche, that was just, that just wasn't there. It wasn't there. You know, I, I remember hearing people say, oh, your poor mother, yeah. you know, something yeah. wrong with her, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, and it got worse. It it's got not, worse. by the way, it's not Canada. The the seventies are known for that. Yeah, I mean, parents really disciplined their children, and neighbors knew. But if it really got to the point what you're describing here, that crossed the line. 
Yes, yes, it, it did. And at, by the time I was 16 or 17 years old, when all of this stuff getting got really bad and my sister's event happened, that's when I began to think, okay, this isn't right for the first time in my life. And then I took it upon myself. I remember this. I remember very clearly that one day I said to myself, it's me or her. Either she's going to die or I'm going to die. She's going to end up killing me. And when she came home that first, that first time after, after coming home from the mental institution, this is when things started to get really bad. Now she would sit in the chair. Well, wait, wait a second. I don't mean to interject. And I apologize to the listeners because I don't like to interrupt people. But what happened during those three months? Who did you stay with? Because your father was 100 miles away, right? Working. Yeah, I just stayed home. <laughs> I stayed home. By yourself. I, yeah, I went to school. I came home. You know, I picked things out of the garden. I mean, I had been alone by my, I was doing my own laundry at seven, eight years but, old. But how did you support yourself financially? Did your dad send you money? Well, this is what we did. My My father... My father grew up in World War II, so he was very, you know, he was a refugee in World War II. Right. He lived on a farm, so they they self-supported themselves, and this is what he did. This is how we grew up. We grew up like we were in the war. My dad was a fisherman. He loved fishing. He would catch a lot of fish, take them all down to Toronto, and then barter. And then he would come back because he knew all these Italian guys that left from World War II and they came to Canada because Canada had an amnesty program at that time. So there was lots of Italians coming and he would go down to Toronto. He would barter in these Italian restaurants, come home with, uh, you know, big wheels of Parmesan cheese that weighed 50 pounds, provolone, salamis, all this. And then we'd store them down in the basement and we never went to the grocery store. He went... I think I went to the grocery store with my father maybe uh, four times in a lifetime, you know, growing up. He never went to the grocery store. We ate fish. Uh, he hunted when he came home on the weekend on a Saturday. He'd go out, shoot a couple rabbits, some pheasant. We always we lived off the land just like he grew up, you know. So, you know, there was no money there. You know, although he made lots of money, he had lots of money. But he never spent any of it. And I think it was part of the the mindset of his family, the way they grew up, because they grew up very poor. Conserve, you know, war-torn, yeah. Yeah, war-torn Italy as refugees and in government housing, you know, and stuff like this. But, uh, you know, and, and we would hide all this food from my mother, you know. And it got to the point where she was finding everything and eating everything. That it was like, and then I told my dad, I because he would ask, hey, where's the, you know, 20 pounds of cheese that was downstairs from last week? Uh, it's gone. It's gone. So what he did was. Gone as in your mom ate it? Ate it. She wow. ate like a ravenous animal. She was so unladylike. And, uh, you know, this was the thing. It was like I was viewing a monster. You know, she, she wasn't a person. And he, even as a kid growing up, I realized that I realized that, that this wasn't her. I, even though I didn't know who she was because she had no interaction with me whatsoever, but I knew that this wasn't her, but I didn't know what that meant until, you know, decades later. But, uh, my dad had to put all the food. This is what it resorted to. He put all the food in the freezer and then put a massive chain on it. The chain was then locked with a big, huge, thick padlock. I mean, heavy duty, 
And that remained on there for, I would say maybe it was on there for a month. And then one day I was come, I came home, I parked my bike. Uh, we had, this is in the basement, uh, the basement, we have two entry points into the basement, one from inside the house. You come down the stairs from the inside of the house. The other, you come downstairs from the outside of the house. So I was coming down one afternoon from the outside of the house. I came down, I came downstairs and to my shock, I saw my mother there with a hacksaw trying to cut the chain off. It was either the chain or the lock. I don't know which one, but she was trying to hack, hack, you know, hack it open. And the only thing I could say by this point, I was, I had lost my nerve completely. I was, I was declining mentally. My stability was very, getting very poor now because I was so traumatized by everything. And, uh, the only thing I could say was I yelled out, Hey, and she never, she was bent over. She turned her head, her, her hair was in her eyes. You know, she needed a haircut. She never had, she never cut her hair. She was like an animal. She looked at me. She snarled at me. Her eyes were just black. And then she threw the hacksaw down and then ran upstairs. And, you know, like I told you, she's like 260 pounds. I, by that time I'm sick over six feet, 130 pounds. I'm nimble. She beat me upstairs. I was I don't know why, but I was just drawn to the horror of it. I was drawn to her. She snarled at me, you know, like an animal, you know, and I ran behind her. She actually beat me upstairs. She, she went through the house, went into her room and then slammed the door so hard that it sucked the air all out of the house. All the windows were shaking, you know, and I ran to the door and right now what's going through my mind is I was shaking like a leaf. Like I am right now. Every time I talk about this, I shake. Um, I, I, I was thinking, this is it. This is it. It's going to be me or her. Somebody's going to die here, here tonight. That was what was going through my mind. And I was completely drawn to it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it was like, I just wanted it over. You know, it's you or me. I didn't care which one it was. And I could see that there was a big bow in the door. The door was bulging outward toward me. She was leaning against the door and holding the, the, the handle to the door. So I grabbed the door and I, with all my strength, I couldn't turn the door. So I was just standing there and I could hear her. I could hear her breathing and snarling behind the door. Just this low, this low growl, just like this. And I don't know how to explain it, but once again, I was drawn to it. I was, I was like, yeah, it's you or me. One of us is going to go. And I just stood there. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't open the door. You know, she was pressed up against it and holding it very, very firmly. So I just waited. I, I just stood there. I just stood there. And I think, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes went by. And uh, I noticed that the, the door, the bow in the door started to leave. So she backed away the door and then I saw the pressure off the doorknob leave. So I said, okay, I think I rubbed my hands together and I got ready, you know, to open the door. I grabbed the doorknob. It opened in. So I opened the door and I swung it in and there she was standing there. She had her a hand raised above her head. She had a handful of pennies. <laughs> I don't know what she was doing with those, but she had a handful of pennies and a bucket in the other hand. And for just this one second, we met eyes 
And I could see that the left side of her forehead and temple were bulging in and out. Like when you squeeze a balloon from one side and it bulges out the other side. Right. That's what was going on in her head. It was like a, like a freaking horror movie just on her left side, above her eyebrow and off to, to the left around to the temple area. It was pulsating and bulging out. And I looked at that and I looked at her straight in the eyes and her eyes were just black balls. There was no, um, no iris, no, no pupil. I couldn't even see, she had green eyes, you know, so it was very, uh, very easy to look at her eyes. You know, you could tell that they were green because they were very light. They were black jets. There was no pupil, no nothing. They were just black jets. And then she, she lunged at me and growled. And at that split second, when I had seen her face and seen her eyes, I was in shock. I ran out. She chased me to the mudroom door. I went outside. She never followed me. I ran out to the street. I looked behind me. She wasn't following me. I knew that I could outrun her on the, on the pavement for sure. But, uh, you know, and then a couple, couple seconds later, I heard the door slam again, bang. And I could see the windows shaking. She was such velocity. She, she pulled the door closed and I, I stood on the, the, the sidewalk and I just kept going. <laughs> I was in complete shock. And I was just trying to say my name and I couldn't say a word. I couldn't say one word that I was in complete shock. All that was going through my head was, was her, um, her forehead pulsating and that voice and, and those eyes. And, and I was in complete shock and I didn't know what to do, but I thought, you know, it happened to be a Saturday. So I said, I know my dad's in town and he had a girlfriend at the time and I knew her phone number by heart. So I reached in, I opened the door to see if she was there. I knew she wasn't because I'd heard the, her bedroom door slam. So I reached in and I grabbed the phone and the phone had a long cable on it and I took it outside and it was one of those rotary phones because, you know, I think we had it, we bought it in 75. It was a yeah. pink one with rotary phone and I couldn't get my finger in the, in the dial to, to do the first number, which was a five. I couldn't do it. It took me 20 minutes. Because you were so nervous. I, my hand was shaking. I still couldn't talk and I couldn't get my, my finger was shaking back and forth. Like if it was, uh, if you measured how far my, my finger was shaking, it was probably shaking from two inches from center. So two inches to the left and two inches to the right. I was shaking so bad. I couldn't get the first number, which was a five. I remember it was five, three, eight. I couldn't get my finger in the, in the, in the dial, in the hole. And I, you know, I eventually got my finger in, but I, I screwed up the number so many times. Who, who were you trying to call at the time? I was trying to call my, uh, my dad's girlfriend because I knew her number. He, she, he told me her number and I had her number in my mind. You know, when we were kids back then, you didn't have a phone book, you know, you had the phone book, but everybody's number you knew by heart. So, so were your parents separated, divorced? What was the deal here? They were not, they were still married. They were still married at the time. So, so I guess the $1 million question that a lot of our listeners must be thinking like me right now, what was your dad in all of this? Obviously he loved her when he married her. I presume this side of demonic possession, where's your dad with all of this? What did he say to her, to you guys? I'm trying to understand where he fits in into, into this equation. 
Well, he was never home. And when he did come home, he only came home for a few hours. And the, the relationship, when he came into the room, the second he came into the room, my mother would, would go from the conversations to, oh, there he is. There he is. And then she'd be saying all these things. She was prophesying, prophesying about where he had just been and what he was doing. I mean, to me, you know, hearing her talk, I would blush because she would say sexual things and, and things of this nature and, and be uh, um, blaspheming and swearing. Oh, he's not a good Christian. You know, oh, he's doing this and that. And my dad would never say a word. I would see him. He'd be in the kitchen. He, he'd yell a couple of times sometimes for her to shut up because he'd get frustrated. But he would last so little amount of time, and then he'd leave. Was he Roman Catholic, or was he also Jehovah's Witness? Well, apparently, he, he went with us a few times to the Jehovah's Witnesses, but um, he was there for only a little bit. So by the time we moved up to Meaford, he was not going anymore. And then they were both excommunicated. So that was early on in the deal. You know, that was like 1975, 76. Being that he came from Italy, I I presume he was Roman Catholic at one point. Well, you know, Italy is a very strange place. You know, they have the most exorcisms of any place on the country in the world. Yes. You know, they have a lot of superstitions there and it goes by your area because of all the history there. And they believe things that uh, are cultural. They have cultural differences that are f- that sound like fables to, to you and me, you know, being in America and Canada. But to them, they're, you know, like, I'll give you an example. The evil eye is, you know, it sounds <laughs> yeah. so stupid, but to them, it's a real curse. It's a real curse, you know? So I don't know, I don't know where his beliefs are. You know, my dad and I have talked over the years and uh, believe it or not, we've never talked about my mother until a couple of months ago. And I told my dad, you know, he's, he said, so how are you doing? You know, and I finally told him, I said, not, you know, dad, I, I, I black out all the time. I've blacked out the, you know, in the last few weeks, probably three or four times. And he's like, well, what for? And I said, dad, I said, mom, she messed us up. She messed us up. And he never said a word. He just went, oh. And so he didn't take any, he didn't take any responsibility at all. No, but he did try to help me with my blackouts, which he sent me some medications and stuff, which, you know, I I never took, but, uh, yes, he, I can look at his face, you know, look at his face and he knows that things were very bad. He doesn't know really what was going on. He doesn't know the extent of it because he wasn't there. By the reason why I ask you if he's a Roman Catholic it's because what you described is very similar to my culture. Had I been married to somebody like your mother, the, the thought in my mind would have been immediately, we need to take her to a priest for an exorcism. Yeah, that was never, that was never on anybody's mind. And, you know, when I look back at this is, you know, I look back at this, you know, this is the thing that they didn't understand. But for the police to come over and know that she was, you know, attempting you know, murder on the children and, and, uh, you know, um, going around telling all the neighbors, she's going to cut their heads off, you know, and how she's going to do it in this and in strange voices, you know, this is what they tell the police, you know, it kept coming to our house all the time for them to not deduce that something wasn't right here. 
but I think, you know, like I said, I can only speak for the Canadian culture at the time, is that nobody knew what to do, you know, because to accept that there was, that this was demonic or, or I, I don't even think they would use that word, but to, to know that it was, there was something spiritual or there was something wrong beyond our understanding, that frightened them. No, they would have looked at it criminal if it happened today. But, you know, I understand that today things are so extreme that parents are scared of even taking their phones or video game consoles for fear that their children are going to call the police. This is today. But this situation you're describing is the exact opposite. I'm surprised, again, you and your sister are alive today. I don't know about your sister's life, but you'll be married since 19, have grandchildren. You're a very talented human being. And it's like you flew like a butterfly from that situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like that on the outside, but uh, that's why I wrote the sequel, which is the aftermath. And that's, you know, the behind the scenes, you know, everybody that knows me knows that I smile a lot and I'm, you know, you know, I try to have a good time and, and try to, you know, enjoy myself and uh, make sure everybody else is having a good time and, and be an easy guy to get along with. But, uh, you know, the, the reality of it is that I've had PTSD all my life. Yeah. I've, I've blacked out so many times. I, I, you know, my regular routine is when I, at, when, as soon as it gets dusk out, I start to shake. I start to shake. So it's, it's like the story of Robin Williams. He wanted to entertain people, but people had no idea that he had these demons inside. Yeah. 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 But you know that the, I mean, I didn't even go through puberty until I was 21. That's how broken down my body was. Cause you couldn't sleep was, and you were probably not eating well either. Uh, well that, and the fact that, uh, that my, my chemistry was changed because I was operating in fight or flight mode. You know, right. every day, every no relaxation. Day. I, mean, I go into a great detail in my book that, you know, I couldn't even enter a room without uh, surveying the, the threat mm. in the room. Every guy, every girl, where's the exit where, you know, where's a weapon if I need to grab one. This is how I live my life. I mean, very much like that movie, a beautiful mind with Russell Crowe. Yeah. I mean, I was able to uh, remember everything people were wearing when I'd be driving, I'd be, I'd be, you know, reading license plates and cars just in the event, just in case something happened, I would be able to go through my banks, my memory banks and say, yep, that was a uh, Lexus, you know, 94 Lexus silver with a sticker on the back, you know, and that's how I, I lived my life. I lived all of my life like that. It's not as bad today because, you know, 40 years have gone by, but it's changed. The PTSD now is I can't deal with stress. I mean, that's the reason why I'm a musician, because I can only do a couple of hours in the public and, and I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. You know, everybody else hangs around. You know, I, I can't do that. I'm not the guy who parties. How old are you now? 53. 53. Okay. So you're my age. So I understand what you went through in the 70s. I cannot even comprehend the, the part about your mother, but I still have a question. Can you tell me? where your parents met, how their relationship was. And do you think that the fact that you moved a hundred miles away had anything to do with her behavior? Um, no, I think the reason why we moved away is because, and this is, this is speculation, but this is 
speculation with evidence. Uh, I believe that my parents, um, back in those early days, you know, the early 70s, I think that, you know, seances was a big deal. Swinging was a big deal. And I think that's what was going on. I'm I'm not positive about it, but I remember my very, very er early childhood to be way over-sexualized. For, for a three-year-old, way over-sexualized. Too many things I knew about that I shouldn't have, and I had to get that information from somewhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, as far as my parents, how did they meet? Um, I, my uncle tells me who's still alive, because he's the youngest of seven. Uh, he tells me that my dad was driving by and saw her at a bus stop. And uh, they, he, you know, pulled over, talked to her, and... Uh, I guess that was it. And, you know, I only have three or four pictures of my mother and they're from the fifties and those pictures that I have, they're very telling and they're in my book too. The, I have one picture at her wedding and the other picture I have at Christmas time. One is 1957 and the other 58. Uh, by the way, I, I I don't know if you got a call, but I, I'm, I'm, I was losing you for a, a few seconds. You said you have one from a wedding and then... Yeah, the other picture I have is from Christmas time. The Christmas time pictures from 57 and the wedding pictures, they got married in 58. And both pictures, my mother looks severely unhappy. She has no, my dad's smiling, but she looks completely, you can see it in her eyes. You can see that there was something wrong with her even back then. You, you know, know, I'm not, I'm not a psychology expert, but I've seen some of these cases not not as deep as yours, but a lot of times the man or the woman is because of the way they grew up, the way they were treated by the parents, or they had some kind of a trauma growing up. Do you know what could have happened with your mom growing up? Well, that's what I said before, that uh, uh, her father, who she adored, and that's what I know, is that he died in a horrible accident. I think she, she was 18, oh. 17 or 18. My, my grandmother went kind of crazy and she went out partying. And then my mom had to raise my, her sister and her younger brother. And uh, I think that's what happened. This is where the entry point where all this happened was, is that her and her sister, her sister got into uh, Ouija boards and seances and they wanted to, my mother wanted my father back or her father back. And I think that they attempted to to try to communicate with him, and that's that's the uh, the entry point that I believe is what happened. Because I remember I remember hearing them talking. I was three years old. I remember hearing the hearing the word seance, and I would say it while I was in my bed: seance, seance, seance. And I remember that word. And then when I got older, I looked it up in a dictionary to see what you know. The, people think that when you're little kids that you're not listening or you don't get it. You know, but you have a memory and you take those memories when you get older and then you, you decipher them later on, you know? So, so let me ask you this again. I'm not an expert, but I'm listening to what you're saying. The absence of your mother's dad and they just well, probably were trying to communicate with the dead. Anybody yes. would want to right? And I'm a very logical person, but at the same time doing this show for so many years, I'm open to everything. When people play Ouija board or they play all these games, they could be giving tacit opening to entities out there. 
Do you think that by playing, say, the Ouija board, they may have opened their physical door to these demonic entities which took over? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I've been a scholar for the last 40 years on this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, when you read in the Old Testament that God forbid to the Israelites, you know, a conjuring conjuring uh, demonic entities and and dead spirits it was punishable by death he didn't say that for nothing it's because you know they need an invitation they need an invitation exactly you know people most people agree that evil exists but you've got to ask yourself you can't believe if evil exists that uh, god doesn't exist either you can't take one part of the equation out and leave the other you know so so the question remains if there's evil if there's evil why isn't it taking over you know it can't take over because there's limits there's hierarchy there's boundaries you know and they're set they're set there by god himself she gave him know? permission to enter that's right she opened up and that's what people do and i cannot stand all these shows on tv teaching all these kids these paranormal shows go out and buy evps so that you can communicate with the dead you know if you are a person that believes and then you can you test these things and you test these things that the bible says you know about spirits and and about uh you know about um their boundaries and you allow them you find out that all these things are true and these paranormal people are telling children to go out and get EVPs so that you can communicate with dead people. Oh, and if you don't have one, just get a flashlight and ha- speak to the entity through the flashlight. And if it turns the flashlight on, they have no idea what kind of Pandora's box they're opening up no. for themselves. Because they're, I've, I've studied every exorcism from the 13th century on, and I've studied all of these Everything about entities and demonic entities and and Ouija boards and everything, they all have the same thing in my in common. They all have the same thing in common. They have a thread, and that is they want an invitation. They need to be invited into your life, and they come as, oh, you know, the little girl that leaves the toy in the hotel room. You know, oh, she means so well, you know, and the EVP says, oh, I'm your friend. So that's, that's bull. It's all a bunch of junk. They want, they're, 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 they're evil, they're wicked, and they want entrance into your life because they want to destroy you and your family. I mean, I've had a few people in my family hang themselves. And one of them was my, my mother's sister's daughter. So the one that was involved with the seances and stuff, you know, my mother's sister, her daughter, who was my age, she hung herself in the basement with three kids. So do you, you think, know, there's a, do you think that she, I guess it was your mom and her opening up to these entities, but the daughter, do you think that she went through with her mother, like you and your sister went through with your mother, her sister? No, no, no. But I know that she had strange things going on in her house, too, because she would write me letters. She would write me letters and and she would tell me, I think I've got ESP because there are voices trying to speak to me. You know, there was definitely a level of malevolence that was going on in her house as well. You know, and my mother, I think I was, um, I think, seven years old, eight years old. A friend called my mother 
and told my mother that something was following her around in the house and she lived in Niagara Falls. And my mom, I overheard this and my mom said, I'm going to come and help you. I'm going to come and help you come and be with you. And she took me with her. <laughs> and this lady who was talking to my mother, you know, was a friend of hers. She was having these entities and stuff. You know, the seventies were a very evil time, you know, and I've done a lot of research uh, from the early seventies to the late seventies, what was going on economically worldwide, that there was so much demonic activity. Because when you look at the cases like Annalise Michelle and all these cases, they were all going on at the exact same time that my mother's, my mother's possession was going on. And I do call it a, a possession because it fits all the criteria now that I've researched everything and, 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 uh, you know, gone back and aligned all the, uh, the, the uh, dots and crossed the T's of, with all of this stuff now. What's well, so the same thing with the, stuff. the girl in the, the exorcist, that movie came out in 73, but I believe that happened around the time Reagan and played by Linda Blair. If you saw that movie, did you ever see that movie? Yeah, that is actually the case of Ronald Doe. That's not his real name, but that was in St. Louis. Oh, okay. That was that case in St. Louis. It was a true case. We have to take a one and only intermission. In part two, I want to discuss the aftermath. Very important to know. But I want to know before we break, what happened to your mom? Well, that's a very interesting part of the story. Uh, by the time I was 19 years old, I had uh, 18, when I was 18 years old, I moved down to Toronto with my sister. I moved away. My dad sold the house. He got my mother a little place in Owen Sound, right on the main street above a store. And I went to see her one last time before I was going to leave for California. And I ran up the stairs. I knocked on the door. She came to the door. She didn't even look at me. She opened up the door and turned around. It's like she knew who I was. She never even looked at me. I walked in. She sat on the bed. She started rambling and talking with all the different voices. And I was, I shook my head. She snapped out of it for 30 seconds, reached over to the desk, pulled out a, an envelope, handed it to me, lied back down on her bed and started and start going into all these voices and all this kind of stuff. I just looked at her, I shook my head, and I said, bye. And I left. When I went to California, I went to California a week later. When I went there, I was there for two weeks. And I gave uh, some people, my uh, cousin, uh, my phone number where I was staying at. And that two weeks later, I think it was on a Saturday, um, my cousin called me and said, your mother passed away. And I said, oh, she did. I mean, I wasn't surprised the way she had, you know, uh, eaten herself to death, basically. Um, they How said old was she? How old was you when she passed away? 46. 46, young. 46. No gray hair. 46 years old. And uh, they said to me on the phone, they said that her rotting corpse is what alerted the apartment people in the apartment building that she was dead. And this is two weeks after you left. Yes. So she must have died shortly after you left then. Well, here's the thing. They had told me that they knew the cause of death and they estimated the cause of death. And they told me, they told me they suppose, and my cousin, he didn't, he was just relaying this message. He said, um, they believe that she died on this day. 
And the day they told me was the day I left. So the day I left, it was as if, you know, the demons were wringing their hands going, the job is done. The job is done. She's see, I believe, I believe, and I believe this strong full heartedly that my mother was never the target. She was the vessel that I was the target. And the reason why I believe that is not because there's anything special about me. It's because I believe that I'm a, I'm a Christian. I became a Christian and now I go speak about this stuff. And that part of the lectures that I give when I speak is I talk about, I expose the enemy. I expose the enemy in our culture. I expose the enemy in our books, in our videos, our movies, everything. And I show you very coherently and a real expose on where the enemy is, where he's been through history and what he's done to mankind. So I believe that I was the target. If you've ever heard the Malachi Martin cases about the little girl, you know, he was, he was the, you know, the assistant, but he was the target. That is great to hear. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure that we're not disconnected because this is getting deeper now. And your mother, what was the cause of death? It was atherosclerosis. She ate herself to death. Okay, at 46. 46 years old. We usually see this in the 70s or 80s, not at 46. Yep. Wow. That's what she did. You know, in the Annalise Michelle case, they starved her to death. Mm -hmm. In my mother's case, she ate to death. Like I said, she didn't eat like a lady. She ate like an animal, like a ravenous animal. I'm still so surprised. I know it was the 70s. It was a different kind of culture. But you had neighbors who probably heard her, probably yes. daily. Uh, did we have the equivalent of 911 back then? You were lucky to have a, a phone. Uh, your sister, you know, I want to know a little bit if it's possible to learn more about your sister. But when we come back, I want to discuss the aftermath because obviously you have transmuted all of this horror into something big and bright and enlightening, and you're waking people up about the evil that's out there like a virus that metastasizes through tv movies books and we need to stop that but how can people buy both books i know when we're recording this the new book is going to be coming out right now i believe right yes yeah it'll be out next week what are the titles again um the first book is devil take the hindmost and then Part two, it's Devil Take the Hindmost, part two, The Aftermath. And you don't have a website yet, but you can buy them on Amazon, correct? Yes, yeah. They'll be on Amazon, available on Kindle. If you have Kindle Unlimited, they're actually free to you. And Michael, I'm listening with a lot of compassion because I have no idea what walking in your shoes must have been and must be because I'm pretty sure that those memories prevail and you're trying to make the best out of everything. I, I know the fact that you've been married so long and you have grade five grandchildren, maybe more now, uh, you're trying to make the best out of it. And I congratulate you from for transmuting your life into what it is today. It's not perfect because you have those things in your mind that probably eat you inside, but you're doing the best you can. When we come back, there's much more. This is Mel Hostelrick. My special guest today is Michael Anthony Gagliardi. A very horrific story with a very good, happy ending. And it shows you how perseverance, like the butterfly, doesn't know until 
It sheaths the wings and it flies away. So much more when we come back. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.